I'm John Landrum. I'm Vice President for Product Development, Marketing, and Organizational Culture at Intralox. Automation to me means giving people tools, which means giving people choices, which is a kind of benevolence. And I realize that sounds a bit grandiose, but maybe you'll agree with me at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to This Is Automation. I'm your host, Corey Dallas, and today we have a very special episode and a very special guest. We'll be talking with John Landrum. John is the Vice President of Innovation, Marketing, and Organizational Culture at Intralox. John's been with Intralox for 25 years, has been named on several patents, and even hosts his own podcast, Triple Win Workplace, which talks about leadership and organizational culture. Those are some of the topics we're going to be covering today with John. Thanks for joining, John, and welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Corey. We podcasters have to stick together. That's absolutely right. So, John, as, as we get started, I wanted to give the audience a little bit of background um, as far as who you are, where do you come from. Um, so can you just give us a quick introduction to John? So I'm a recovering attorney. Don't hold it against me. I practiced <laughs> law for 10 years here in New Orleans, and I was on the board of a, of a nonprofit organization, a charitable organization with Jay LaPere, who's the, the uh, owner lead for uh, our company. And on that board, with Jay and I often found ourselves disagreeing, but we really liked the spirit of each other's way of approaching disagreement. And Jay began to say, John, if you ever got tired of practicing law, we could use a guy like you out here. So I joined the company uh, in 1993. I moved from a staff position inside the corporation into Interlox itself uh, a year later and went to Europe where I became the European general manager, moved home in 97. And I was the, in those days, leading some of the groups that were opening up some new industry markets for us, like the tire industry and the material handling markets. I was the manager of the people who led that effort. The, there were some really enterprising young inventors involved in that and that's what opened those markets and one thing led to another as we opened those markets we were inventing new products and those products began to proliferate into something very exciting and i'm sure that, that some of the interesting details will come up later in this session so after several years of that i was asked to lead new product development here in 2011 and now i lead new product development for all of the industry teams that we have it's a centralized function for that I lead the marketing group because it's so integral as we're trying to sell our solutions. It's, it's really critical that we have good connectivity between the messaging and the, and the content. And then organizational culture, if you, if you look behind me here, you see three posters on the back of my wall. You would see those inside any Intralox uh, or Latrum, the, the parent company uh, offices. It's hard to find a, a company these days that doesn't have things like this on the wall. I'm not aware of any company that gives as much attention to making this real as we do. And I know Corey will be talking about that later about what it actually means, but our, our business philosophy is is really been critical to our company's success. Absolutely. The three things that you're focused on are innovation, marketing, and organizational culture. You started talking to this already, but can you, can you tell everybody kind of how those things tie together and uh, why it makes sense to, to kind of group those things together? Well, I don't know how many of the listeners are actually involved in uh, 
new product development. But what we find is we think of new product development as or innovation as the place where needs and capabilities or potential capabilities meet. So you really are connecting dots and you're, you're, you're asking, so what are, what are the things that our customers specifically need, not only based on what they're asking, but also on what we're observing ourselves. We have a direct business model. So we're actually, we sell direct rather than uh, through middlemen to the end users that we sell to the food processors, the tire makers, the can makers, and the big logistics companies. We sell mostly directly to them, although we also collaborate with equipment makers quite a lot. And so we have direct connectivity and we get uh, a very intimate picture of what's going wrong in their facilities that we might be able to make better. So when we're inventing something, we're not the kind of people who are just coming up with something and seeing who needs it. It's, it's really almost pre-sold before we start working on something. We start to see enough trends or things that come sort of into the innovation world that we say, no one's asking for this thing, but we've seen enough trends that if we introduce it and made it real, then we were pretty confident this would push out. And so that's a long answer, but you can't do that very well if you don't have a very collaborative mindset. So there's no individual who's adequate to the challenges we're now facing and solving customer problems. So the only way we can do that well is to have great collaboration between the people who are touching those problems and bringing those into our you know, new product development system and the people who are trying to respond. But even those people who are trying to respond need to have the willingness to reach out to experts in a lot of affiliated fields and get their engagement. So what we call conversational quality is a very big deal. And a big part of what's on our wall here in our culture is we call it a challenge culture. Everybody has to feel free to disagree as long as we're doing it responsibly and speak frankly about our views. And that's the only way the best ideas can get surfaced. So for example, if you have a, a sort of a, uh, an egomaniac leading a meeting and no no ideas are coming out, this is going to be a very low efficiency innovation group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting point you, you bring up. You call it challenge culture. Um, before I was in the automation industry, I was actually in the, the energy industry and in, in nuclear power generation. We called that questioning attitude. From that perspective, it was it was all about safety, making sure that everybody had the authority to to challenge a decision from a safety perspective. But here, looking at that, is is everybody has has the ability to to make an impact on culture in on innovation. And I do want to talk about that more. But before we start talking about that, I was hoping you could give us a quick introduction to Intralox. What kind of work does Intralox do, and where where might we see Intralox products? Good. So we are the largest subsidiary of a holding company called Latrum. And Mar- Latrum is Martial spelled backwards. And Martial was the middle name of J.M. LaPere, who died in 1989. Uh, J.M. had 190 U.S. patents. The first was a shrimp peeling machine that they turned into a very successful business. That was the original business. And he had trouble with the, the wear life of the uh, wire conveyor belts that were feeding those shrimp peeling machines. Mm-hmm. So he invented a modular plastic conveyor belt. Imagine plastic Lego pieces in different shapes and sizes that are formed by interconnecting plastic rods to form conveying surfaces of any dimension. And so that was sort of an unromantic invention of his, but it's actually been the most valuable invention of his. It's now our annual revenues now are over 600 million annually and they've consistently grown unless there's a, a financial panic like in 2009 or a, or a, 
COVID crisis, like right now, we grow an average of 10% a year organically uh, based on the value of that product line and uh, sort of the near adjacencies. And so the original solution was being introduced into food processing where USDA inspectors were threatening to shut down poultry and meat plants because of hygiene issues on some of the older tech belt technologies. And our belt is cleanable to a clean swab count. And that's what got it in those environments. So the food markets were the original markets, but they expanded from there into tire making, can making, et cetera. Um, what then happened as we were opening up the tire making market, uh, a man named Mark Costanzo invented an adaptation of our product, the modular plastic and bare belt, to put rollers on axles in these cavities, which made it possible in finished tire handling for tires to come out of the presses where they're vulcanized into finished tires and come onto these trench lines and not get jammed together because of friction on the conveyor surface. So that revolutionized finished tire handling. Um, from there, the same inventor invented uh, that product placed now at uh, an angle. You can see, I hope you can see that the rollers now are not lateral, like in the tire application, but now they're at an angle. So you could go to people who are handling parcels and the parcel would ride on those rollers, which are idle until they hit some surface below that activates them and makes the, but based on that action, makes the angled rollers push the parcel off. So it was useful as a sort, as a sortation or as a, um, as an aligner. And then uh, we were working with some people in Baltimore who are now part of our company. And they said, well, what if you turn that upside down? What if you have a longitudinal roller like this? We call this the Series 7000. And you have pop-up devices underneath that that are angled and can make this spin at different speeds based on the angle of what pops up. And, the, um, and that then led to a very selective activation sequence we can see something like this this is called a rack and roll system where you can actually control the angles via the direction of these on that surface conveyor at a very micro degree which means now if you go very high speed and go in a very controlled way and that same baltimore group then invented putting a roller on top of a roller here so that if you have if the underside meets some action, it makes the top go backwards. So you can get a true net 90 degree vector shooting off a product at true 90 degrees at very high speeds. And there's a little more that I won't, but I won't go too far into the future unless you ask me to later. But what that did, you see us getting therefore into these near adjacencies into automation, because as you're, what this does, Corey, is these systems enable sortation and inlining or singulation at very high speeds across a wide range of products in much simpler, more affordable forms than were previously available. So this took, this made automation affordable and brought an ROI to it that did not exist before. Yeah, it's really interesting. My, my, the next question that I had, I, I think I've answered my own question, but I'll ask you anyway. So, I mean, it's, it's very clear that a lot of technology and engineering goes into the systems that Intralox works on. Um, and I think you said it yourself, it, it wasn't the most uh, fancy or showboaty type solution, that, that modular plastic conveyor. So I imagine it can be a little bit hard to build excitement about conveyance and sortation 
So I'll just ask you directly, how do you get people excited about the systems that Interlox is working on? We get refugees from places like aerospace who say, uh, someone who is very highly ranked in his class went to work in say aerospace and he's worked three years on doing the finite element analysis for a wing joint that later is going to be reviewed by reviewed by a committee to see if it's going to be done. So a lot of a lot of the places that we think of as highly innovative, you're 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 not able to get those short feedback loops. And so what we promise a young engineer is that her or his stuff is it's responding to a clear market need. And once we activate it, once we start working on it, it's going to take between six months and 18 months to come to reality, and then it will be installed. That's profoundly satisfying to inventors to actually see their things out there in the world making a difference. So that's what we sell. When you have that kind of a feedback loop, we're able to draw in people from, frankly, sexier industries who realize that the actual activity in those sexier industries may not have been as gratifying as it seemed. So in, in Triple Win Workplace, which is the podcast that you host, you talk a lot about organizational culture and, and the role that it plays um, you know, in, in companies. So maybe I'll just ask that question directly. What, what role does culture play in the success of a company, in, in your opinion, and in your experience? And then as a follow-up to that, do you think the role that culture plays um, or the type of culture that is most effective is different for a manufacturing or industrial type company versus some of the other companies out there? Maybe I'll answer the second question first. I don't think so. I think if, if imagine I own a little donut shop and I'm selling exactly the same pastries to exactly the same customers in exactly the same time of day, in exactly the same ways I've done it for 20 years, I don't probably need to think too much about organizational culture. I can have some some younger people coming in. I can boss them around. I don't care what they think. Just do what I say or you're fired. And maybe you get away with that. In any environment where you're constantly trying to initiate change, either innovating on the customer-facing side or on the system side internally to keep streamlining your processes, none of that's going to happen with an authoritarian approach. So when our meetings are going well, uh, they don't always, but <laughs> we're always trying to get better. But when our meetings are going well, it should be hard to tell who's the boss in the room. The boss is the one who's trying to make sure the right questions are getting answered but he or she's not dominating the conversation. And if you say for that to go well, we know that our ultimate constraint is talent. And talent can mean a lot of things. It can mean the X's and O's, but it can also be mindsets. Do I have a problem-solving mindset versus a victim mindset? Do I have a collaborative mindset versus a lone wolf mindset? Mindset. So we need brains, but we also need mindsets coming in. And that doesn't happen if you don't create a great workplace. If you say, what, what kind of places are talented people looking to work at? They not only want financial rewards and financial security, but they also want uh, to be heard. They want to see the impact of their work on the company and on the world. So how do you create that environment? Otherwise, we can't attract talent. So this, it, you can think of it as a virtuous cycle, right? The, the triple win workplace, mm -hmm. the whole concept comes in when you talk about who are the three different categories of stakeholders that have to be satisfied for a business to exist at all? You first have to satisfy the customers, right? If the customers are not winning, they quit buying and the whole thing dies. If the owners are not winning, they, they quit investing. They quit giving us tools to do our job and they go elsewhere. But if the employees aren't winning, then uh, then then that then it's not stable either. So what what is it that makes it 
possible for those three sets of interests to converge successfully. And it's a continuous improvement mindset. That's, that's part of our business philosophy to make sure we're sharing the rewards, making sure that we have uh, lack of authoritarianism. And this really shows up too in automation and in innovation. When, we, when you can look sometimes at, there was a time in the past when those products I was showing you a minute ago just looked like kind of an interesting idea. Here they are, yeah, they might work, they might be valuable. And every year they got a little more value, they got a little more traction, a little more interest in customers. And it had to take us into these near adjacencies. So the only way to sell the activated roller belting equipment that we now sell was to show how it improves a total system or line layout. So we could only sell that by getting good at understanding line system line layouts in the Packer to palletizer environment or in the logistics environments. That was a new skill set for us. It was a near adjacency that we had to grow into. Then we had to get good at vision systems and algorithms that translate those visions into sequencing, which is now our smart singulator. So we kept growing and growing and growing that way. And the point that I'm coming to, Corey, is when you see bigger and bigger groups of talented people coming under that original value umbrella and being stretched in a very healthy way to make the most of their talents and get rewards from doing that and in turn growing it, that's what, that's what you see happening. When I go back, I'm out of that business now. I'm not, I was once the leader of that business back when it was relatively small and frankly compared to now fairly primitive. Now when I go back to that environment and see what's happening, you see how that innovation is sucking in talent. It's not only helping our customers, it's creating really attractive opportunities for our employees and really interesting rewards for the owners. So, so when you look at a organization, how do you identify what a good culture is and what a bad culture is? Is it a result of the effects that you see um, or is there a way to identify it before things get bad? Great. That's a, that's a great question. So, so what are signs of health? If you, when I, <laughs> I guess, uh, one, one thing I still do health checks when I travel and I interview people, they're reporting to managers reporting to me. And then I, I ask them, how's your job satisfaction and why I ask them, is your manager clear? I ask them, is your manager do a good job of understanding what you're trying to say? And then I ask, are you comfortable disagreeing with your manager? So to me, that's a major, uh, a major health check. I think for every, for every subsystem, you got to say, is there a clear end in mind, whether it's the company or whether it's the department? Is it, is it clear what we're trying to do? Is it, do we have a, a reality-based but invigorating definition of what great looks like? And does everybody understand that? Would everybody get the same answer? Are they excited about it? And do they understand where they fit in the team? Are they, are they, in their three circles of what they get a kick out of doing are really good at and is valuable to the company. Are they doing that? Do they have the tools they need and are they feeling free to be themselves in that environment and speak up in that environment? And if that's going well, a lot of other things could take care of themselves. So I, I for example, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself at all a great strategist. And, I, and, I, and we have some, some pretty good strategists in our company, but we're not mainly based on strategy, at least at some sort of chessboard level. Our strategy is much more about making sure we understand customer value. It's more about mindsets. We understand customer value. We're translating that back. We make it easy to do business with the for the customer. And for us, if you have the right culture, that's going to drive operational excellence, which is going to continuously create um, uh, opportunities in themselves. So it's not, it's not, that's a, that's a major driver for us. And we find that that's helps us grow organically and, and, and very consistently. 
So let's say I've, I've done one of these health checks and, I, and I'm identifying some sort of systemic problem. Maybe it's, it's not yeah. just tied to one person. I, I'm identifying this pattern. Yeah. What, what would you say are, are key elements of focus for a brand that's really trying to reinvigorate their organizational culture or change their organizational culture if, if they're noticing some toxicity or something like that? I'm a big fan of Jim Collins. So if you talk about an actual company with a brand, I think it gets back to, I don't know if you've read uh, Good to Great. He's, he's got several good books. One is Good to Great, where he's comparing companies that tended to get separation from their nearest competitors at certain times in their past, what they have in common. And one was a very clear understanding of what he, what he calls their three circles. What is it that that company can be uniquely good at that's very valuable to the world and the employees get excited about? So that's the first thing I think as a company, you got to say, what is it that we're just set up to do uniquely well? And you can't kid yourself. You can't solve that problem with enthusiasm. <laughs> you gotta, you got to look at it and say, what's real here? And, and if that doesn't add up, if it's not real, if it's not convincing, that's the first thing you got to fix. you got to say, what, what's the unique value, sort of type of value we can offer? And if that's not imposing or impressive, you got to fix that first. And then is everybody excited about it? and rallying around that. So it's hard work. If you're gonna turn around a company or turn around a brand, I think it first starts, you can't skip that step of saying what's real, what's valuable to our customers, and are we uniquely positioned to deliver that, at least some part of that, or can we quickly become uniquely positioned to do that well? Because if you can't do that, there, there are no tricks that cure that. That's the first thing. When we look at this this topic of organizational culture, there are certainly companies that are successful that you could argue don't have a very good organizational culture. Um, is there a place in the market for a company like that, or do you think this is you know some 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 violation of how a business should be run? What's your opinion on that? Well, I, I would imagine it's not sustainable. Right? Mm -hmm. That's probably the best way to put it. I can imagine you can do very good leapfrog. Uh, so. You, you, I think you can do amazing flash in the pan work with an authoritarian leader and a political mm -hmm. environment and, and where people aren't feeling free to do that. And if you're mainly being driven by a charismatic leader, you can you can certainly do a lot of things a lot faster than we did, frankly. We didn't, you know, because we grew organically at the rates I told you. You see some other companies jump pretty fast and get in the news a lot and, and look for all purposes to be doing pretty well. Um but over time, that I don't think that's self-sustaining unless you unless you create a culture that goes around it. And there are there are lots of companies, I won't name any names, there are some companies that can look authoritarian, but at, at the execution level, there is more of what I'm talking about going on. So uh, you might have a charismatic leader, but at a but at a lower level, they are pushing in other language a lot of the stuff I'm talking about. So I, I want to shift the conversation a little bit from culture to innovation, which I think those are, are certainly related, as we've talked about. Um, but another relationship I want to focus on is looking at the, the, the interplay between innovation and risk. So uh, the ultimate question that, that I'd like you to answer there is, is, do you think it's riskier to try to innovate and fail or to not innovate and then get left behind? Our, so our, our motto is fail a lot, but fail fast and fail cheaply. So, so hurry up and get things out there in the world where you can experiment. Our, our business model takes a lot of the risk out of this. So I go to meetings downtown where there, New Orleans, is the, it has, like a lot of cities, has a, a startup culture. 
and I'm part of a network that goes and listens to young inventors. So I've got this new whatever, right? And there's kind of a wing and a prayer and hoping that it'll go somewhere. They're trying to get investors and that's, that's high risk. Most of them fail. At most of our innovations come from conviction based on things our customers are telling us and that we have seen firsthand that this sort of integrates all that or synthesizes it. And so we feel pretty safe when we're doing incremental improvements to our product lines or solving the sort of thing that we know how to solve within a year's time frame. It could get released. We, we, we tend to feel that's pretty low risk. Where we get into higher risk is when we do something we call an emergent capability. And a way to think about that would be maybe comparing it to 3M, who I have a lot of respect for. In fact, uh, 3M people have been extremely helpful to me personally when I've tried to get consulting for them on how to think about these things. They have the sort of um, incremental improvements inside their business units. And then they have, so their new product development is inside their, their commercial business units for sort of the, the this next year's product. But they have a group of, I'm trying to think of the number, 26, 40, some number of independent groups they call central research labs that are just trying to do foundational new breakthroughs in things like abrasion or adhesion or microencapsulation that they know they've been hearing from the limits of what their, the, the business units can do, that if we can invent this, we know it'd be valuable. And that's a little bit higher risk. And we do some things offline. We have some things where we, in my department, think we know better than what people are asking for from the business units or what the customers are asking for. They're not asking for something because they don't think it would work uh, or they just don't imagine it's possible. But we can say we've seen enough things coming through the, the train station here that if this were possible, we know it, but how, how could it not add value? And mm -hmm. uh, Matt Forney, uh, with the key inventor in the Baltimore operation, uh, had that attitude mindset about what we now call the smart singulator, the, the singulation system that um, – that looks at an array of packages, creates a vision snapshot and says, okay, let's apply this algorithm to optimize the sequence of the packages to get them simulated the fastest way possible. What we did to make that real, we didn't want to clog our normal channels getting that done. So we went to an outside collaborative group to say, let's, let's take away all the feasibility challenges here with you. And when that's done, let's put that back into our system. So we tried to, we try to do that sort of thing. And we learned this the hard way. We try not to, do emerging capabilities in a way that costs time in our normal uh, develop-to-release system, which is another kind of risk, right? If I if I invest in something that may or may not be feasible and I lose two years of productivity in my normal channels, that's mm -hmm. a big loss. So I prevent that. Now I'm just writing a check, which is less risky for us. That That's how we de-risk it. You know, another question that I have in the context of innovation in, and you, you talked about this a little bit already that, you know, the, the innovation at Interlocks at least is, is very customer driven. Um, so I guess as an add on to that, you know, what, what is the ultimate end goal of innovation for a company like Inter, Interlocks or for, for any company out there? And, and how does that inform what projects you spend your time on? It's, it has to be driven by customer value. You know, we're not selling cosmetics or a shoe brand. We can't get people revved up about a look or a feel or a, you know, a smell or that sort of thing. This, this is very reality-based. Our customers, typically, when they're writing us a check, it's a big check, and there are a lot of people in the decision room. We're not going to sell stuff on a whim. So our marketing is really, it's, I would call it, very advanced truth-telling. How, how do you make <laughs> a complex system less complex to understand and what the value is quite clear? And... The point is that none of that's going to sell unless it adds 
a, a compelling value to the customer. It doesn't just have to be past the 50-50 line on whether it's a good idea. It has to compete for all the different opportunities that executive at the customer, that buying influence, which are pretty senior at most of our accounts. They have to choose how they're going to spend their time, what options they're going to look like. That in itself is a big opportunity cost. So we are not just competing in terms of, we're not just competing with doing nothing. We're also competing with all the other ways they could spend their time. So if we're not, we have to innovate with value in mind, and we have to be very real, reality-based in terms of what customers are going to value. What, what's the balance there between um, kind of the push and pull? Are, are you trying to create value to, to market and sell to your customers? Or uh, is there also you know a pull from the customer to say, hey, we have this problem that we're looking for a solution for how do those relate together we we get both we get both and the, the typically typically the customers are saying this is a problem and we have to do a good job of integrating those things but often we'll identify problems that are maybe have more of an impact to the customer that they haven't done all they haven't because the customers are increasingly big and fragmented no one has synthesized the total cost of that problem we're solving so that's part of what our marketing needs to do is to say do you understand all the costs of the problem we're solving for you now and why this is so valuable to you. So there is, there can be a trade-off, you know, when a customer is asking for some small thing because it's clearer and, and some, some bigger unsynthesized thing, they may, they may compete. The other problem you have in engineering is everybody, imagine you go to your doctor and you say, I need an appendectomy. And your doctor says, wow, okay, let's find out when the operating room is open and uh, where they wheel you in without any further questions or examination, you'd say that's not a very good doctor. So our commercial groups, our customers often ask for a thing, and we've made some mistakes, frankly. We've wasted time and money creating things that weren't optimal, trying to respond to that thing. What we really have to get good at is saying, well, let's talk about all the problems you're trying to solve. You came in here for a reason. What's really going on? And that widens the solution field. Mm-hmm. And it tends to make us hit the salute, the target a lot more clearly. I hope that's clear. Yeah, definitely. Um, do, do you think innovation is a repeatable process or is there some element of luck and chance tied to it? I think so for the for the develop to release stuff, the, the nearer you get to, the, the incremental stuff, the less, the more repeatable it is, the more you're trying to look for the, I'll call it the home run. Uh, yeah, we have those flashes, but even, but you can create an environment where those flashes are more reliable. So Mark, uh, Matt Forney, for example, has, has said for years, if I just had like a 10 most wanted list, if we just knew if we could have clarity that these are 10 major problems our customers face, and they're just on a board somewhere, they're well-defined, then and I'm and I'm having continuous exposure to them. Yeah, the flash might come to me in a sort of a random way, but that setup, my exposure to those accounts, my clarity on the on the opportunities creates a framework where those flashes are more likely to be reliable than something else. So yeah, you can't you can't control. Um, when I first when I first took this job and the mission was to to raise the the consistency and level of innovation, I didn't know how to do that exactly. So I, what I did instead was attack the enemies of innovation, right? So what are the things that make it hard to innovate? You gotta have big opportunities that are well-defined. You have to have good problem statements. 
you've got to have the right people in the right place on the bus and have to get in the right exposures. You've got to create the right culture where that's true and the right rewards. You create that and uh, the, the outcomes are going to be, I think, predictable. That doesn't mean they're going to be predictable in the, in the moment. So when is Matt Forney going to suddenly have that whatever? I can't predict that, but I can create a climate where it's going to be predictable that good things are going to happen. How does a, you know, I, I think many people would say we're in kind of an unprecedented global crisis right now. Um, and I think different companies are handling that in different ways. But w- what is, in your opinion, the impact of, of a, you know, a, an economic crisis? It doesn't have to be the one we're in now. It could be 2008, 2009. How does that impact innovation? Should companies continue to focus on innovation at that time? Should they ramp innovation up? Or is it okay to shift focus on just keeping the doors open? We certainly, short term, we shifted focus to the immediate because we um, we wanted, it was very important for us uh, to, uh, and this was a major shift in our marketing group to say, we want to make sure it's crystal clear to our customers that we are open for business. We are completely fine here. We are undamaged. Our assembly operation is good. You can still, still be the reliable partner that you've come to know. And we were also working on uh, the, the nearest to home products that we knew were solving problems they were willing to, to spend time on now. Um, you do read. So this is just in the literature. There's, I can say a lot of things like, you know, wartime is often a, a great cradle for innovation, right? And, crime, mm-hmm. and, and Shakespeare wrote Macbeth and King Lear while he was under quarantine for mm-hmm. you know, the plague. So you can say, you know, that crises don't, you know, shouldn't get in the way of innovation. But it all depends. It depends on what you're talking about, right? So if, if I'm worried about remaining a going concern, of course, I'm going to downshift into near adjacencies and stuff that can sell next in the next six months. I'm not going to be working on emerging capabilities. Um, we are so far, fingers crossed, we're down a little bit this year, but not in a way that would make us change our product development strategies. Innovation, I think, naturally leads into the next topic that I want to talk about, which is patents and IP protection. As a lawyer, I'm hoping that you have some interesting perspectives on this. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this. So Intralox holds, I think, almost 1,400 patents when, when I last looked, and you personally are named on, on several of those. How important is it to protect the innovation that you're working on using the patent process? There was a time in our history when our original patents had expired and we would still make product improvements and the competitors to the original type of belting tended not to be developing new products at the rate we were. They tended to see what we were doing and then imitate that. So we got very sensitive to that problem. We tended to make the investments and then have to to fight off the imitators. I won't say that that's currently true, by the way. We're, we're seeing some some people in modular plastic and bare belt trying to innovate and make some original investments. But, but in those days, if we didn't patent things, it was quickly imitated. And so we had to get very aggressive about that, and we're still very aggressive patent enforcers. And as we get into stuff that's not modular plastic and bare belting, as we get into some of the equipment and some of the other lines that I didn't talk about today, that, are, that don't play to our service strengths. So we have a unique service structure that enables us to mitigate downtime on our belting and the systems of our customers. That's also a giant competitive barrier for us. But in fields where that may not be true, where we're inventing some gadget, a component, that sort of thing, we don't have confidence that we can sustain that competitive edge uh, unless we can patent it or patent enough things in that area to have that competitive boundary. And this gets back to the triple win because 
if you can't make profits from this, you are not going to see innovation. People are going to, people are not going to make the kind of investments we make in innovation if we can't be relatively confident of making a, a profit from it and rewarding the shareholders for that. So yes, we're very thoughtful about our patent strategies, and uh, and, I, and I think I don't think I can't imagine us innovating at our rate without that. Yeah, can you, can you talk a little bit more um, about that? You know, I'm interested if you think that kind of the patents and the patent process and in, in this, uh, you know, uh, it's almost like a badge of honor to, to get a patent for, for your innovation. Do you think that that plays any role in the culture of innovation at Intralox? We don't find uh, patent vanity, meaning, <laughs> when, when, so here's what happens. When we send something to our patent attorney and say, here's, here's another claim, and he says, who are the inventors? You don't see people trying to muscle each other out. You'll, you'll see people... You'll see Patty saying to Patrick, "Well, you, you, but you had this element. You have to be on this, and there are certain standards for who's an inventor. So they're not. It's not just being friendly. They're being reality based. But there are also people crowding mm -hmm. each other out. I think people like having name patents. I mean, even when 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 one guy stands up at a meeting and, and says, "Okay, now this is his fifty uh, seventh patent," and uh, somebody else says, "Okay, well, I'll be me someday." But I think that's that is a good motivator for young engineers. That that is a motivator. I'm not an engineer. For me, what I try to do, my name has gotten on patents sometimes because I'm in a room and we're stuck on something and not being an engineer, I'll say, well, could you do this? And someone will say, actually, yes, you could. So it's just a kind of dot connecting and then someone else reduces practice. So I would not, you would not want me to be the main responder to a need you had as the inventor. That's not the kind of inventor I have. I'm just, what I do is I organize good meetings. <laughs> Excellent. So, um, I, I think there, there's some, uh, maybe common arguments out there when, when you're looking at patents, it's, is it, is it in, enforcing patents? Does that restrict innovation? Um, or does that actually encourage innovation because you, you're, you're putting, you know, these, these innovations and designs out there for others to build on? What's your opinion on that? Just understand that 20 years after you submit any patent, it's free now. Right. It's it's, mm -hmm. it's in the public domain and completely. So every 20 years, these clean completely out and all these ideas are published. So that was the idea um, of, the, of the people who wrote the patent laws. And in countries that don't have good patent enforcement, you do not have the same kind of innovation by business. You may have a government sponsored vaccine, something going on, but you don't have what we're talking about today. You just don't see nearly the volume of it. Look at the pharmaceutical industry where most of the um, most of the innovations happening right now in America because of the patent laws and, and people, it creates a real tension, right? So, gee, I have to pay this really high price for this drug for 20 years, but that drug wouldn't exist. It's not being created in other countries, it, less and less without, without those patent laws. So can you, can you paint a picture of, of what the United States would look like without the patent process? Uh, I think you'd have a lot more other things going on. I think people, what, what patents allow us to do is to be completely free and transparent. So oftentimes innovation is between us and someone like your company or someone or, or an end user. And when we have some, some shelter from the patent portfolio that we have, we can be completely transparent with you and co-innovate. When you don't have that, it makes us have to be a lot more careful and it, it, it makes it harder to be transparent. So you have, I think you have a lot more secrecy, which is worse. Fluidity is a big deal. 
Um, and so where innovation happens in markets where there's free exchange of ideas, you see more free exchange of ideas in the, in the business world where people don't feel that that exchange is going to cost them something. And patents are one way, they're not the only way, but they're one way of having that security. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's almost counterintuitive that uh, you're putting these patents in place to protect yourself, but that actually enables you some some protections to actually share that. And then, like you said, there can be some co-innovation in those sorts of things. So very, very interesting. Um, if you can, what are some of the new things that you're working on right now that your team is working on that you're most excited about? So sometimes we ask ourselves, if you were going to compete with us, what would you do? <laughs> and we say, well, then, okay, let's, let's us do that. So we patented this. This is a competitor, a, a sort of an, an alternative to the activated roller belt equipment where you can imagine this is called an omnidirectional, the, the device that it enables would be an omnidirectional sword, but you have these omni wheels on uh, gears that can be turned and, and a belt running under it. So what, now you can have multiple things coming on uh, from a belt onto a centralizing area at very high speeds and going multiple directions. Um, and, and so that's a, a new thing. It's a very young thing. It's released for sale, but we haven't heavily promoted yet, yet because it has system implications for our users that, that make the way you sell that a little tricky. But Matt Forney is the inventor of that. We are also in the hygiene world, a big part of our market. It started in food production. Right now, those people, for, for most of my development, they were primarily worried about microbes. Now they're increasingly worried not only about microbes, but contamination, contaminants, any, any conveyor component that might get broken off and into the food and create a recall. So we're trying to work on a line. We call it sort of the world's cleanest conveyor project. But clean doesn't just mean microbial clean. It also means free of that sort of thing. How do you create conveyors that are conveyor systems that are the least likely to create those problems? And then how do you create conveyor components that make it hard to misapply or misinstall or misengineer those conveyors? So everybody wins. The equipment maker wins. The end user wins. Startup is a non-event, but also during the life of it, you just don't see parts of it coming off into the, because there's, there's a finite number of reasons that happens that we know how to, how to fix. So we'll be introducing that over the next two years. We're pretty excited about that. Excellent. If, if people want to learn more about Interlocks, any of these uh, new innovations, what's a good way for them to do that? Go to the, go to the Interlocks website, www.interlocks.com, and there's plenty in there that you can roam around and learn a lot from. It's also quite clear on the website how you can, who you can contact and how for more information. Excellent. John, thank you so much for this conversation. We talked about quite a lot today, organizational culture, innovation, patents, and, and lots, lots more in between. It was really exciting to talk with you. Thanks for joining me. Corey, thank you. Uh, good work. So coming up, we have some amazing episodes lined up, both technical topics and interviews with thought leaders in automation, robotics, AI, and IoT, lots and lots of exciting stuff. So you'll definitely want to keep an eye out for those episodes, and you do that by subscribing to the podcast. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to check out the YouTube channel by searching This Is Automation in YouTube. If you enjoyed the podcast, let us know by leaving a review or comment in Apple Podcasts or on YouTube. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and we will see you next time on This Is Automation. Mm -hmm.